so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners, whether you're a first timer or whether you have been with us for a long time. Um, welcome to this podcast. Um, you know, in my last one, as we're going through this series through Luke right now, in my last podcast, I had talked about the fact that I thought we were going to be done with the chapter, thinking that for some reason in my mind we were in chapter 12, but we were doing chapter 11. And I thought we were going to be done with the ones that were like 50 verses, uh, 59 verses, 53 verses. Well, we've got one more. So today we're going to be hitting Luke chapter 12, which as I was kind of reading over it briefly before I turned this thing on um, to start the podcast, we're at 59 verses. So... That, uh, that small little break of doing uh, several chapters in a row that were in the 30s, um, we still have to wait one more time for that. So we're going to be hitting this one. I'm going to be doing it how I've been doing it previously, giving you guys breadcrumbs, not going as, as in-depth on some of this stuff, um, just because I don't like to break these things up into two different parts because I think that sometimes we get a first-time listener who's going to be in the second half of Luke chapter 12 and they're missing the first half. And it just, for me, it... I don't like doing it. I only do it if I feel like the Lord is telling us midstream to stop and to do it and let, let it just kind of soak. And he has his reasons that are beyond mine. I'm still struggling with a little bit of, of uh, my voice to, uh, just because I've been sick. And so I apologize for that. I will be taking drinks every so often. So hopefully that isn't too loud in the microphone for you. If you are a first-time listener, let me just kind of give you some insight into how I teach. This is a teaching podcast. This is not one in which I'm going to give you a lot of fluff. This is not one in which you're going to probably hear a lot of things that you want to hear. This is going to be teaching through the Word of God in such a way to bring edification to the body. And I say it in that, in that sense. As uh, This morning I was going over Acts chapter 20 with my kids as we're going through our way through Acts. And I, I, I felt it was really interesting that what Paul talks about here, it says that... Um, as he came to the church in Ephesus on his return, on his way trying to go to Jerusalem, he said these words with, to them. He said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And he goes on and he talks about some various things, but one of the things that really that stuck out to me is that it says he didn't shrink back. Now, why would he shrink back if he was telling them things that they wanted to hear? Why would, why would Paul have a, a tendency or a temptation to shrink back from declaring them about, telling them about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and all these good elements of God that we tend to focus on so much in the church today? 
And it struck me as the reason that he might shrink back is because the things that he was telling them was what they needed to hear and possibly run the risk of losing them as friends. And he called it what was profitable. And you go into Colossians 1, 28-29, it says that Paul, with all of his energy, meaning that God's energy was powerfully working within him, he says that his, what he toiled for was to present everyone mature in Christ, teaching and warning everyone. Now that would include an unbeliever, but his primary context is to the believers. Paul says, in order to present you mature in Christ, that which is profitable for you to grow into maturity... I'm going to have to warn you and teach you. So this podcast is exactly that. I'm going to talk about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. But I'm going to tell you a lot of times the things that nobody else might seem to want to tell you. I'm going to tell you the hard things of God. It might seem unorthodox, but I guarantee you everything that is stated is going to be rooted in scripture. And so that's going to be the style of this podcast 24-7, every single time that I turn this microphone on and I turn it off, it is going to be filled with teaching the Word of God so as to grow you in edification. You probably won't like many of the things or some of the things that I say. And I'm not the greatest orator. I'm not the greatest guy who's just going to sandwich everything with just these nice, warm, fuzzy feelings for you to make you feel better about yourself. I want you to feel better about who Jesus Christ is in you. I don't want you to feel better about yourself. Flatterers make you feel better about yourself. And Romans 16, 17 through 19 tells us you better watch out for them and actually avoid people who flatter. Because that's not those who serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. I don't want to serve my appetite. I want to serve Jesus. And if I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 1. So with that said, 59 verses in chapter 12. There's going to be some heavy hitters in this one, so pay attention through the whole thing. Um, You better gird your loins, as the King James Version would put it. We're going to get into that even just a little bit, because it kind of comes into it into play later. But I want you guys to make sure that you're clothing yourself with humility. That is something that you have to clothe yourself with. It is not something that God just grants to you and gives to you, unbeknownst to anything for yourself. You have to choose to clothe yourself with humility. It's actually a command in Scripture. You have to come under the mighty hand of God. You've got to look at the Word of God as the authority. Otherwise, you might listen to this podcast and be like, yeah, that's not really for me. I kind of like to decide my own rules. Well, then I'm going to question whether or not Jesus is Lord of your life. And we talked about that in the last segment about the the rule of the strong man. So let's get into this. Kind of an open introduction as to who I am for those who are first-time listeners. One through three. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they they were trampling one another. He began to say to, to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be uh, known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So what is Jesus trying to say here? What is hypocrisy? What is leaven? Well, leaven is a Greek word here, zume, and it means that which infects others or ferments unto something greater. Okay, It's like yeast. A little bit is going to end up increasing the manner of whatever it's put in. So if it's put into bread and you put a little bit of yeast there, that bread is going to rise, it's going to ferment, it's going to grow, it's going to increase, and it's going to, as the word says, infect others. And so he says, what is this leaven that the Pharisees are, are doing? Well, it's, it's hypocrisy. And that Greek word that's used there is one that's, actually I had it pulled up, let me see if I can get back to it. Uh, that Greek word that's used there is going to be... 
hypocrisis. And it basically means the acting of a stage player, dissimulation, and dissimulation, if you're not familiar with that, is going to be a word that means concealment of one's thoughts, feelings, or character. Okay, so it's somebody who's hiding the real identity of who they really are in order to deceive other people. Okay, so hypocrisy is not just something that, oh, you know, um, you're such a hypocrite in the modern term of it today. It's somebody who is intentionally trying to deceive others away from the character of who they really are. And they're doing it in such a way as to try to lead them astray. All right, that's kind of the idea behind this. And so... Um, this concept, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says, look, the things that you do in the dark and the things that you don't want anyone else to see, those little thoughts that you have, those emotions that you struggle with, all those things that you try to conceal so that nobody else sees them, God sees them. You're not going to be able to hide them from him. One day, they will be revealed, whether it's going to be in this life or the next. First Timothy 5.24, let me read this real quick. It says, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. He says, look, in this life, you might have your sins found out. Willingly or unwillingly, they might come to light. But if they don't come to light in this life, they are going to in the next when you stand before the judgment seat of God. You will be found out. And, and this doesn't just go for unbelievers um, alone. This goes for believers. That's who he's actually talking to. When Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 24 through 25, and he's talking about sins and good works, he's talking to believers. Let alone in Romans 14, 12, and then in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, he says the exact same thing. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. You will give an account. Now, that's not going to be my topic. I could run with that. As I've done in previous podcasts, I would just encourage you, go listen to the previous podcasts, and at some, of, at some point, you're probably going to come across it. But the concept is, is, you are going to give an account for those secret things that you think are secret sins, but they will become to light. All right? And he says, beware of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Their secrecy, those things that they try to hide from other people, like they've got it all figured out, they've got it all together, it will be made known. And he goes on, he says, I tell you, my friends, and again, I would love to go a little bit deeper and, and sometimes when I have to kind of hit highlights, I struggle for the words because I don't want to go too deep, but then I want to make sure that I teach it correctly. And So sometimes there's going to be times where I, I, it might seem like I'm struggling. That's because I am. I'm a guy who likes to go deep. I like to give the meat of the passage. Um, and so it's difficult for me when I, when I feel like I'm rushing through um, because when I taught, I didn't always do that. Um, I had time for them to come back the next week and be able to, to teach. So if it sounds like I'm, I'm struggling in finding words, that's because I am. In verse 4, it says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Remember, he's talking to his disciples first, and then he's talking to the people who are clamoring, trying to get to him or trampling one another, the thousands of people that are there that aren't necessarily his disciples, but they are people who are interested to hear what he has to say. They just haven't committed to be a student or learner yet. Somebody who's willing to put themselves in the disciplines of the faith, which is what a disciple is. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Now, let me just pause it right there real quick. And I know some of you probably are familiar with this concept of this passage, and you know what he's about to say, fear not. Well, let me just tell you, fear not never comes on its own. And here's what I mean by that. Fear not. Anytime you find that, whether it's in Matthew, whether it's in Luke, whether you're even going to find it later on in some of the New Testament writings, you're never going to find the concept of fear not until the proper expression of fearing God happens first. And here's what he's trying to state by that. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 1 with John. He sees the glorified Christ. Jesus appears to him. You know, he describes what he sees. It says he falls down as if dead, terrified at what he's seeing right now. And a hand touches his shoulder and Jesus says, fear not. Here's what Jesus is trying to tell him. You were right in fearing me. You were right in displaying this fear of who I am. But fear not. I don't want that fear to get in the way of the message I'm about to give to you. I don't want fear to stand in the way of you being so captivated and you're trembling of fear towards me that it gets in the way of doing what I need you to do and hearing what I need you to hear and seeing what I need you to see. John, I need your eyes. I need your ears on me. Don't be trembling so much that you're forgetting to listen to what I have to say to you. This is the concept that he's about to give to us. Fear not is never given when it's not a follow-up command. After fear him has been stated or the proper fear has been given towards him. I, and the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people have said, I'm, I'm not going to fear God. The command is I need to love God. Well, where does that command come from? It comes from the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, over and over and over and over in the same old covenant... It's commanded to them to fear God. In fact, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, at the end of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, and everything he had experienced, he came to realize there was one duty of man, and that was to fear God and keep his commandments. That's Ecclesiastes 12. You can go read 12 through 14, kind of summarize the whole thing and, and entails it there. The whole duty of man is to fear God, and yet that was still part of the old covenant, where love the Lord your God is there. Love and fear are, are supposed to be working on, in harmony in our relationship with God. And let me just get this very clear for you. Fear, as defined in the Greek and in even in the Hebrew, is not just reverence and respect. It's not just having a, a, a reverence and a respect for somebody. The Greek word that's used there is phobeo, and it's the, where we get the English word phobos. Or, I'm sorry, phobos is the actual root of that. Phobeo is the word that's used. It's where we get the, the, the English word phobia. So if you are an arachnophobist, that means that you have a trembling fear of spiders, right? That's where we get the word from. Phobeo is the Greek word that's used here. It's the same word that's used whenever Jesus appears to them on the waters. And it says they look out and they see that it's a spirit. They think that this is like a ghost, a spirit of some sort that's there. And it says they were terrified. Do you think they were like, oh, spirit on the water, we reverence and we respect you. No, they were terrified. Same word that's used in Philippians 2.12. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will... Better not take him for granted of who lives in you. This is the same God that if you entered into the Holy of Holies, you were struck down dead in an instant if you even had the semblance of sin in your life. 
The same God whose presence filled the Ark of the Covenant in which when it started to fall, one man grabbed out to try to hold it from falling and he touched the Ark of the Covenant instead of the pole and he died instantly. That's the presence that lives inside you and I. Work out or katagazame your salvation. Bring it to completion. Bring your salvation to completion in the fear of God. If you don't know and understand the fear of God, you don't even have the beginning of wisdom. I once had a pastor who told me that fearing God is only reverencing and respecting Him. And at that moment I knew it was a red flag and I said, I cannot listen to much of what you have to say any longer. And in fact, everything you have to say will always have a red flag to it because Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't understand the fear of God and what it truly is, I'm talking about Mount Sinai, peals of thunders, earthquakes. If anyone even touches this mountain, he's going to die. Why do you think Peter, James, and John were so terrified of the Mount of Transfiguration when they're on this mountain and here's Moses talking with the presence of God and the last time that took place that they had heard the stories of, it says if anybody touches this mountain, they're going to die. And here Peter, James, and John are standing on this mountain. They're like, uh, (laughs) this is not good, guys. Right? If you don't understand the fear of God and our proper response to who He is, then you don't even have the beginning of wisdom in your life. So anyone who comes to you and just says, man, we don't need to fear God, we're under the new covenant. Man, I would not listen to a thing they say. If somebody comes to you and says that fear is only just reverence and respect, I would not listen to anything they say without a red flag going up. Man, you better be careful because fierce wolves, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus, he says, after my departure, fierce wolves are going to rise up and they're going to speak twisted things and they're going to try to lead many people astray, even from among your own selves. And don't trust somebody who doesn't understand the fear of God and our need to fear Him. And so he goes on and he says, Fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. He says, look, man can do whatever they want to to your body. But God can do whatever he wants to with your soul. That's who you really need to fear because one's temporary, one's eternal. Why as the church are we so afraid of man whenever we see this standard? He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a command. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than the sparrows. He says, look, fear him. You need to fear him. But never let that fear get in the way of serving him the way he deserves to be served. Man, I wish I could go deeper on that one. But let me just read this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and I'll kind of wrap it up just with this concept. He says this in 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, notice who he's talking to. He's talking to the beloved. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's calling them the beloved. It's a term of endearment that is used solely in the New Testament for the church of Jesus Christ. Save one time in Romans where it talks about the Jews and it says that they are still beloved for the sake of, of, of um, God's love for them as still being the Jews, but they're no longer his people. He still just loves them dearly. And he wants them to come in and to know him, but it will only be through Jesus Christ. 
He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us, notice Paul includes himself there, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That says it right there. He says, it's your responsibility to cleanse yourself. How are you going to do that? You're going to do it through Christ and the Holy Spirit that's in you. But it's your responsibility to take hold of what has been offered to you to achieve that which has been given to you. And he says, since we have these promises, what promises is he talking about? He says, we are the temple of the living God. Backing up into verse 16. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, meaning the world's midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord. He says, yeah, you're in the world, but you are not to look like the world in any regard. Your aims and ambitions in life are different than the world. Your daily agenda and your mission is different from the world. How you look, how you raise your kids, how you train up your kids should be different from the world. Unfortunately, I don't see that much today. I see much of the church looking exactly like the world. And as a guy said one time before, he says, oftentimes the only difference between the church and the world is that the church's car is gone on Sunday. That's about the only difference between the world and the church anymore today. But listen to what he says. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing then. I will welcome you. Isn't that an amazing thing that Paul's talking about in relation to today's believer? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. He says, you need to go out there and be holy as he is holy. In the fear of God, because he most certainly will do what he says, whether that's for good or whether that's for judgment. And you might be a Christian and you might think, God's not going to judge me. I would encourage you to open up your Bible and read it. Because it's all over the page. Second Corinthians 5.10. I've already quoted that one. one In which Paul says. Um, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body. Whether good or evil. And you can go read Hebrews chapter 10. 26-30. I just read it to my kids this morning. Where he starts off and he says. If we go on sinning, notice the author includes himself. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Man, this, this, this is not a joking matter. This is not something that's to just be trifled over. This is not something to just be glossed over and ignored as many people from the pulpit do today. This is something to talk about. He goes on, he says, then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and soul or spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It doesn't get much more clear than that. You are commanded to fear God, but never let that trembling fear keep you from hearing his voice, doing his commands. And be in his hands and feet in this life. So, as I said, I would love to go deeper on that one. But it's a breadcrumb for you. Take it and run with it. 
Verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. There's several concepts in here that I would love to take deeper with you guys, um, but I'm going to try to limit it to just a couple. One of them is, is he talks about this denying before men um, and acknowledging him before men is what's going to actually dictate whether or not you are acknowledged or denied in heaven. So it all comes down to what is your position. Your position in Christ hinges on your acknowledgement of Christ in this life. Okay? That's what he talks about. That's what faith is. Okay? It's the faith in who Christ is, the son of the living God. As the Lord supreme in your life. That is the acknowledgement before men in this life that will actually carry over into the next life in which Christ will say, yeah, I knew him. But if you deny him in this life, if you deny his lordship over you, if you deny him as who he really is in this life, when you stand before him in the next, he's going to say, I never knew you. Or, I don't know you. Those are two different Greek phrases and they're uttered in two different accounts in Matthew 25 and then going into Matthew 7. I never knew you or I'm choosing not to know you. There's a big difference and if you don't know the difference, I don't have time to go into it right now. But the point is, is that it's all about your position. Are you in Christ because of your faith in who he is as Lord over your life? And I don't say that lightly. A lot of people use that kurios, that word for Lord um, they use it very lightly today and flippantly. Oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's Lord of my life. Like, oh, okay, do you live your life according to the fullness of the word of God written to us in Christ in the New Testament revealed through the apostles? As Ephesians 2 says, do you make every choice in your life based off of filtered through the word of God as if God is accepted? That new car that you just bought, did you ask God first? When you stopped having kids, did you ask God first? Or is that because that's what you wanted? Man, I could go down the list and just run a gamut with questions for people to say, is God, is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Or are you just throwing around that term because it makes you feel good? Because you know what the Bible says about Jesus being Lord of your life. Point is, is what is your position? And it will be determined by whether or not you truly let him lead your life as Lord, not just a proclamation, not just a believing in your heart and confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, but then never living like it. Do you live your life with Jesus as the Lord of your life, governed by the word of God that he's given to us through the epistles in this new covenant of Christ? Or do you not? It's all about position. And then he talks about this, speaking a word against the Son of Man, you can find forgiveness, but blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, you'll never find forgiveness. This is one that gives scholars a lot of problems, and to me, it's actually a very simple thing. You can speak all you want to against Jesus, and you can still find forgiveness in the end. You can still find whatever you want to, you still have a chance to come to Christ. Okay? I'm not saying that after you die, you still have a chance. Ecclesiastes says that once a tree falls, that's where it lies. You don't get a chance. Once you die and you breathe your last breath, if you didn't acknowledge Christ before men, man, you ain't getting in. There ain't no purgatory. There isn't nothing in which you're going to get a second chance. 
But maybe on your deathbed, you denied Christ and you spoke evil against him. But as you are about to breathe your last, you acknowledge Christ as the Lord of your life and as the Son of God. And God says, then you get the same reward as those who served me since the morning. You don't know what I mean by that? There's a parable that talks about it. But what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Here's what I would look at it to mean. In James chapter 4, 1 through 10, he talks about in a message to the church, right? He's talking to it, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, look, in the church, there's people who are fleshly and people who are wanting to live by the Spirit. And it's causing divisions. Their passions are at war within them. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you do not ask, um, I'm sorry, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you're cheating on God with the world. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let me just tell you this. The only person who can make themselves an enemy of God is somebody who's be- who has been a friend of God. And here's what I mean by this. Ephesians 1 tells us that while I was an unbeliever, I was, I was born as an enemy of God. I was born into this world, into sin. And by my, by my natural birth of being born of the flesh, I was automatically, I didn't even do anything. I was automatically an enemy of God because I was against everything that he stood for. And I had not come into Christ because the only way to be a friend of God or a friend of Christ is to do what John 15 says, to obey him. And John 15 says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you don't do what he commands you, then, then you know what? Uh, you're not really a friend. The point is, is that making yourself an enemy of God is not something that an unbeliever does in and of themselves. It's something they are. The only person who can cheat on Christ and make themselves an enemy of God after being a friend is a believer. And if you don't believe me, listen to what he says next. Because there's only one person, only one, who the Spirit of God dwells in. And that is a believer. Listen to what he says. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Notice that he says... The spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There's only one person who has the spirit of God in them. And he goes on and he talks about, but he gives more grace. Meaning that he, it's not over for you yet. Yeah, you're, you're making yourself, you're putting yourself on a battlefield against him. And this might be a totally new concept for you, but I'm, gonna, I'm challenging you to take what the word of God says, not what, what man or human tradition has always said, not what is orthodox in the land today or in the church and Christendom today, because I'm going to tell you what is orthodox today is wrong on many levels. Orthodox simply just means the, um, the popular belief amongst the majority. Let me just tell you, that there is a lot of orthodox teaching out there today that is wrong. And in fact, much of it didn't even get invented until the last few hundred years. Go do your research. The point is, 
is that this concept that he's referencing here for us, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, is I believe somebody who has had the Holy Spirit begins to actually turn from him. That's why it's a command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were marked for the day. We get that word sfregizo mixed up. We think it means sealed like a Ziploc bag. Like, oh man, you are signed, sealed, delivered. It is um, once and done. Like you prayed that prayer, man, you are sealed to the end. No, the word sfregizo, it simply just means that you're marked as a child of God. And it's by the spirit that dwells in you. And the spirit that you have because of your position in Jesus Christ. And here's what I'm saying is I believe that apostasy is a real thing. I believe Hebrews 6 teaches it. I believe many other passages in scripture teach it. I don't believe it's easy to achieve because of God's steadfast mercy and his love towards us. That he's constantly seeking to train us and to reach us. But I do believe that is possible. And you go read Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. But the point is, is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I believe the only person who can truly, truly do that into the new covenant is a person who has received the Holy Spirit. And as I would like to go deeper on that one, there's a breadcrumb for you. He goes on, he tells you, don't worry about defending yourself. He doesn't say anything about taking up arms. The only thing he says is, don't worry about defending yourself. I will give you the words to say if the time comes for you to defend yourself. But he doesn't say anything about trying to physically defend yourself. That's a whole other topic for another time. And I've talked about that one as well at length on previous podcasts. But I'm going to tell you, I don't believe the Christian has a single right ever to try to physically defend themselves from another person. Because I don't believe that doing it represents the cross of the one who went to the cross and never once physically sought to defend himself from other people. Instead, what was his aim and what was his words that he said and uttered on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'll let that soak with you just for a little bit as I keep going. And and I'll say this. So many people, at least here in America, are indoctrinated with an American Christianity that is not Christianity. And that's why these concepts are difficult for them to understand. They're not as hard for me to understand because when I was 25, I came to God and I was tired of not knowing what I believed. I was tired of saying that I was a Christian and yet I didn't even know why I was a Christian other than uh, if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to hell. I didn't even know what it was I believed, what I stood for. And I went to God and I basically just said, look, I've never really opened up your word and started reading. I've never really sought to, I went to church my whole life. My dad was a pastor and and I did everything I was expected and I knew to do. I tried to be a good husband. I tried to be a good father. Um, I, I tried to work hard. I did my 45 hours a week. I provided for my family. I did all these things and that's what the, the good Christian American man does. But I never knew what in the world it was that I believed. And so one day I went to God when I was 25 and I just said, God, I don't care what I think I know. I don't care what I've been taught. I want to know directly from you what your word says. And as much as I don't really want to get into reading your word, I'm going to do it. And I made a commitment that day to say, God, whatever your word teaches me, I will believe it. And that was all that God was waiting for, to have a clean slate to say, Now let me build you up, my child, in wisdom. And I began to read, and God began to fill. 
And it's been a 15-year journey ever since that point. And I haven't arrived to the end, but I can tell you, man, praise God that He has given me an understanding and 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 a scope into the Word that is not filtered or tarnished by an American lens. I look out and I see so many, specifically men, American men who are missing the boat as to what it means to be a Christian man. And a lot of the things in which they live for, in which they build up their, their days with and their feed their time with and all that various stuff has nothing to do with the gospel and our mission for heaven. Very little, if anything, to do with it. And we're missing the boat as men today simply because we don't get into the word and study it and let God teach us. And oftentimes that's because our perspective and the lens in which we view the word has been Americanized and not canonized. So I'm going to go on, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Oh man, we're about to get into one of the... the, The biggest things that I think tarnishes our lens when we read the word of God. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator of you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guarding. It's all covetousness, which is a Greek word, pleonexia. It's a desire for more or expecting a return. Like I'm only going to give to you if you give something back to me in increase. I'm going to charge you interest. Do you know it was actually um, commanded to a Jew that they were not allowed to charge interest to a fellow Jew? Like if, if you borrowed money from somebody, it was commanded that you were not allowed to charge them interest to a fellow Jew. Just a little tidbit. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And I want you to take note of this real quick. I'm going to emphasize it. You're going to, you're going to see what I emphasize or hear it. Um, so you're going to take, get, you know, catch on pretty quickly. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. Everything was about himself. It was about the betterment of other people. Acts chapter 20 says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to live this life as a living sacrifice for the sake of God and for the sake of his church and for the sake of the gospel than it is to receive anything that this world has to give to us. It is more blessed from God to give for God. And one of the most damaging things that has come specifically from the American teaching is this concept of a health, wealth, prosperity gospel in which God simply just wants to bless you beyond measure. Let me ask you, if he didn't bless Jesus with worldly success and prosperity and goods and wealth, what makes you think he's going to do it to you? Because as they treated him, they're going to treat us. He goes on, he says, but God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now this is going to come to play when we get into chapter, when we get into 33 through 34. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more at length. I'm going to show you that the early church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they got it. They understood it. 
We don't today. 2,000 years removed from it and lots of false teaching, lots of perspective shifts and twistings of of the, the word has got us to believe in something that has nothing to do with the life of Christ or his early church. We've bought it hook, line, and sinker. We've, be, we've chosen to become friends of the world. Which simply just means to be decorated with the world. To look like the world. To have the same interests in the world. Well, what was so damaging to Demas was that he left Paul because it says that he was in love with this present world. And he deserted him. Jesus had an opportunity to have this world given to him. And he responded back to Satan after everything shown to him. And he says, look... Those who worship Satan, whether it's willingly or unwillingly, unbeknownst to them, they're the ones that Satan's going to give this world because it's been given to him to give to whoever would worship him and bow the knee to him. And Jesus simply responds and says, look, here's the deal. You will worship God and him alone shall you serve. You worship God, you get heaven. You worship Satan, you can get this world, but you'll be missing out in heaven. Which is it going to be? Because there's not a, there's not a, a middle ground on that one. And there's not a, um, you don't get both. You don't get heaven and this world. It's one or the other. In the image of Christ, in the image of his apostles, you can go read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You can go read in all these accounts. I challenge you to go read it. Do your study on it. And you're going to find that the early church was not prosperous in a physical, indulgent, worldly sense. You can go actually read in James chapter 5, and it says the exact opposite. It says those things that you store for yourself are going to be evidence against you. This thought that God blesses us when we have indulgence and riches and luxury, that that's God blessing us? No, 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 no. That's God giving you an opportunity to bless his name, and you used it for yourself. And what did he just say about the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God? You fool. This night your soul will be required of you because you chose to eat, drink, and be merry. Now where does that come from? That comes from Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, they decided to build a golden calf. And what was interesting is that they built this golden calf, but they did it in such a way as to try to honor God. They said, we'll have a feast to the Lord to worship Him for how good He is. And yet they used the gold that they got from Egypt. That God said, I had the, the purpose of you to use that for building my temple. Like the whole reason that I caused the Egyptians to give you that gold was for you to use it on the temple. Not for yourself. For my work. For my mission. For my glory. For my name. For my Uh, reputation amongst the world that's how you're supposed to use the gold that I gave you when you came out of Egypt but instead you used it for yourself for idolatry and it says that they rose they ate, drank and were merry because they said that when Moses went up on that mountain that he was delayed and they didn't know when he was coming back so they decided to live it up well, the parallel to that is that Jesus is gone and he says, one day I'm going to come back and you don't know the day or hour, you know what it is. And there's a lot of people who are deciding, well, we're just going to eat, drink and be married because he's delayed. We don't know when he's coming back. So we'll start spending it on ourselves in idolatry. Forgetting that 1 John 5.22 says, you need to keep yourself from idols. And unbeknownst to a whole lot of Christians in America today, they are falling victim to idolatry. And I would not be a watchman on that wall if I didn't call it out when I see the warning and the judgment of God coming. He says in Ephesians 5, 
that the the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It says, lest you take part in their wicked works. You look in Ecclesiastes 11.9. I'm going to turn to it real quick because I don't have it memorized. He says here in um, Ecclesiastes 11.9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. He says, look, you want to live it up? You want to eat, drink, and be merry? You want to have your comforts in this life and your life of luxury and self-indulgence? And you want to have the best food that you can have? And you want to have the nicest house and the nicest cars? You want all that stuff? Well, go ahead and do it. But just know this. that God's going to bring you into judgment. It's not something that you're going to avoid simply because of you thinking that it's okay. He says this. In Ecclesiastes 9, remember, this is Solomon, not in days of which he's become a senile old man. This is in the days in which he is, he's lived everything. He's done everything under the sun. And he has realized that there's only one thing that truly matters at the end of life. As he's writing this to his sons, and he says, guys, please learn from my mistakes. Learn that I set my heart to do everything under the sun. And I have found that in the end, everything is vanity. There's only one thing that truly matters. At the end of my life, the only thing that brought me true satisfaction, the true joy, the true peace, was to fear God and obey His commandments. That was my whole duty, and I have failed at that in many ways. In chapter 9, starting in verse 7, he says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would he say vain? Ah, forget it. Don't worry about it. Let's just keep going. I like what he's saying. That he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil, which you toil under the sun. Man, that sounds great. I mean, forget that vain word. Let's just throw that one out. And just say, man, God wants me to have all this stuff. He wants me to enjoy life with my wife. He wants me to have oil on my head as a sign of wealth. He wants me to have all this stuff. And he's already approved it. That's great. Let's, let's keep going. This is great. In verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Well, that just burst the bubble. This is the same concept. Eat, drink, and be merry. And you're going to find that things will not be as you think that they should in the end or as you would want them to be in the end. You will give an account. Even in the New Testament. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 6-7 through 7, says this. Let me turn to that one. And I'm doing a lot of teaching right now. This might not be your style. You actually might like the fluff. Well, let me just tell you, it's not going to do you any good on the judgment seat. Whenever you stand before Christ, and He's going to say... Why didn't you do what I asked you to and live how I told you to in the image of me? I gave you an example so that you would know what it was to live as a Christian or as a little Christ. Well, I kind of like the teaching from the pastors who just told me what I wanted to hear. He says, yeah, I warned you about them too through Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says, there's going to be a time when people are going to depart from the faith because they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I warned you about that. Now you're going to get judged. And you very well might keep your position in Christ because you held your faith in Him to the end, but He's going to judge you for how you lived in a way that didn't resemble Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Oh, no, I said 10, 6 through 7. It says this. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Man, I hope you're getting this. I hope you're getting this. There he goes on. Oh man, I lost my spot in Luke 12. So he goes on and he says, look, Don't store up for yourself treasures on this earth. Be rich towards God. He goes on in 22, and you know what? I'm going to have to end up breaking this one up into two segments. Um, But it's been good. He goes on in continuation of this. We're going to wrap it up in verse 34. I'll probably read 35 because that's a continuation of it. And it's a very paramount verse for us to understand and read. Um, But we'll pick it up on a part two, starting in verse 35. But back to 22, he says, and he said to his disciples, therefore, therefore. So he's continuing his thought of what he just said. Of so it is with those who are rich for themselves. And they don't invest and aren't rich towards God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. He says, look, don't worry about those things. Man, you don't need to go out there and eat all the organic stuff that's out there. Make sure you have the best of the best for your body. Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about that you're out there getting that $4 bottled water. Man, how selfish and indulgent are we when we think that that's okay? Man, that's all I can drink because that's just the best of the best of the water. Man, my body is a temple of the living God. I got to take care of it. Man, you are abusing what that even means. Man, don't think you got to go out there and get those Armani suits. And and I have no respect for people who do this stuff. Maybe I should say no. I have very little respect for people who go out there and man, they're eating that $12 steak, $12 a pound steak. You know, consistently, it's beef or grass-fed beef that's just solely organic. And they're drinking that 4 or $5 bottled water that's just gotten from some, you know, whatever it is. And they're putting on the Armani suits. And they're doing it's like, man, I'm dressing to impress. I'm a temple of the living God. I got to make sure I look the part. Have you, have you heard of Jesus? Have you studied his life? Have you realized how he lived? Have you studied the apostles and how they lived? Because none of it matches up to what you're saying you are doing. Don't even look close. Not even a semblance. He says, don't worry about that stuff. He says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? He says, I'll take care of you. He goes on, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small, there's that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the heaven, how much more will he clothe you? He says, guys, look, I'll take care of you. Stop worrying about providing for yourself and being rich towards yourself and storing up all this stuff for yourself, laying up treasure for yourself. Stop investing in this life. I will take care of you. Give your last two copper coins to the work of God. I will take care of you because I see that offering and I see that you've given more than anyone who gives in their abundance. 
I will take care of you. It is my promise, God says. Because in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It is an if and then promise. If you do his will and you seek his kingdom first, he will add the food, drink, and clothing to you. He will add the necessities of life. It's called the bios. It's the means in which God will sustain your life in order to accomplish the will that he has for you. He will provide for you. Are you content with simplicity? One of the greatest quotes that I've ever heard was, live simply so others can simply live. We just, we, uh, she's actually still down right now, but one of the greatest examples that I've seen personally of that is a, is a, a dear family friend of ours named Susie Kluzak, who God is giving her money. I mean, she's working for it, but she, she has a very well-paying job that doesn't get in the way of what she has to do in her daily life and serving the Lord, but she has a well-paying job, but she lives simply. She doesn't get all the fluff of this world. She lives simply. She gives more generously than pretty much anyone I think that I know. She has blessed us on more than one occasion. She's helped invest in this ministry. She has given us money for this building that we were building. She has done so much for us and we're not, it's not limited to just us. She is always willing to give and rarely does she spend it on herself. Live simply so others can simply live. Be rich towards God. And that's going to make sense in just a second because he summarizes this concept of do not lay up treasure for yourself but be rich towards God that comes into play in a few verses. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, oh, you of little faith. Do you realize that when you live the indulgent life, you are of little faith? Oleogopistios is the Greek word that's used there. It just means that you are lacking in faith to trust God. Because you think you've got to do everything yourself. This is what Revelation 3 is about in the church in Laodicea when he calls him lukewarm. He says, you've forgotten that without me what you're really like. He goes on and he says, Do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Listen to what he says right after this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's trying to reassure them. He's trying to say, hey guys, it might be a difficult road and it's going to be sacrificial, but just, just know he wants to give the kingdom to you, but it will require something of you. He's trying, Jesus is trying to reassure them that the father wants to give you the kingdom. He wants to do it, but he is requiring something of you. Listen to that requirement. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, look, I want to give you the kingdom, but I require your heart to be devoted to me. And if you're out there living by storing up, laying up treasure for yourself, having that nice fancy house that gives you all the comforts and luxuries that this life can afford you and that nice car and those nice clothes and eating the nicest meals, then that's where your heart is. 
It's not with me. God isn't in the business of battling for the attention of your heart. That, that's not what he's, he's looking for in life. He's looking for people who are devoted to him. He's looking for people who are sold out for him, for his cause and for his mission. Is that you? Are you somebody who's devoted to the mission of heaven? Or are you more concerned about the things you can get in life in this world? Living it up with your wife and your kids. Having the nice fancy house. The nice cars. And your whole bent is towards providing for your family a nice cush life. Let me just tell you, that is not your purpose on life. If you're a man and you're listening to this and you're a husband and a father, that is not your mission in life. Go read 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 35. Go read Luke chapter 14, 26 through 27. You can go read so many passages in the New Testament that's going to tell you your purpose in life is not your wife and it's not your kids. So now some would look at this and they would say that this is a, this is just a descriptive passage. Some, some jargon that people have learned in, in seminary to try to reason around passages like this. To say, well, this, this is just describing um, some aspects of the church. But it's not prescriptive. Jesus isn't prescribing this. I, you read this passage and you tell me if you think that he's just simply describing or prescribing. Because it sounds like to me he's prescribing here. Sounds like he's telling his disciples and those who are listening to him, this is what it's going to take to receive the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like it to me. I think we've done a really good job of trying to use some earthly man-made jargon to try to reason away truth and principles that God has given to us. And why do I say that? Because I'm going to say in Acts chapter 2, you're going to find that they obeyed this. Acts chapter 2 was a descriptive passage because they saw this as prescriptive. Man, I get so tired of hearing people talk about how, uh, uh, just so you know, Acts, Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a descriptive passage. It's not necessarily prescriptive. It described them because they heard the teachings of Jesus as prescriptive. That's why they obeyed it. Listen to what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let me just say, those four things is what the early church was devoted to. What are you devoted to? Just an honest answer. Analyze your life when you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night. And you analyze your day. What were you devoted to? Was it really to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread? Or did you miss Sunday because you needed to go work? Did you skip that prayer time because, well, man, you were just too busy and you had to go get something done? Did you not read today because you were just so consumed with your job? What are you devoted to? He goes on, he says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and giving to the needy. What was the command in Luke chapter 12, 33? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
do we, do we still see this as just descriptive that God's not going to call everybody to do this? Well, I'm sorry. Jesus seems to be calling everyone who wants the kingdom of heaven, who wants to honor him, who wants to be devoted to him and give their whole life to him and be on mission for him and their whole heart belongs to him because he is their treasure. He says, seems to me like he's trying to tell us, don't try to live it up for this world. Don't eat, drink, and be merry. Seems like a prescriptive thing to me. And on the evidence of two or three witnesses, let me read this in Acts chapter 4 of what it says here. Now the full number in verse 32 of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And listen to what he goes on to say in 34. There was not a needy person among them for all... I'm sorry, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And don't buy into this junk that's out there today that just says, well, these were prescriptive. I'm sorry, descriptive. God's not necessarily asking you to do it. Yeah, He is. He's absolutely, because you know what? He, Jesus did it for you. He had everything that heaven could afford and yet he was willing to come down on earth and to be born in every way like us and to live the life of a poor man so that he could make you rich in spirit with the life that is in him, not in the life that is in this world. It's the God of this world or it's the God of heaven. You can't serve both. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 6. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is an impossibility. There are few things that the word says are impossible, and this is one of them. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve the God of this world and the God of heaven. It is impossible. You cannot serve your flesh, and you cannot serve the spirit. Because if you serve your flesh, you will make yourself an enemy of God. Because the spirit is in you, and he yearns jealously over it. The point is on all this, guys, is that these teachings that Jesus has given to his disciples are things that are carried over into the church. And we see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We see that through the life of the apostles. What has happened is, is that man has introduced false teaching that we have now in the church in America specifically have fallen victim to and it has caused us to abandon the true teaching and the true imagery of Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave you with this. I've already brought up 2 Timothy chapter 4. But I'm going to read you in Philippians chapter 3. It says this in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me as Paul writes to the believers in Philippi. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not necessarily of Christ, but of the cross. And what is the cross? Luke 9, 23. Anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow after me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross is self-denial. It's the exact opposite of self-indulgence. And he says, keep your eyes on those who walk in self-denial. Because there's many who are going to come among you who are going to be self-indulgent. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things.
Man, watch out for false teachers and heresies that are out there that are leading you away from the imagery of Christ. You want to find the blessing of God? Live like Christ. Y'all be blessed.